politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen, to a brand new week here at CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house, August 30th. We're almost two-thirds of the way through the year, and we are staring down the barrel of perilous times. I need not tell you that. You know, every day I come in and try to see what could I do to focus on the most important issues that matter. What is the most important message that needs to be disseminated at any given time? And it's truly a challenge in this day and age because there are so many emergency issues from culture to civilization, economy, security, both national security, domestic security, freedom, and health. And it is truly eerie and shocking to be going through a time of genocide in this country, but it's evidently still too subtle for people to realize, so much so that if you turn on 90% of conservative radio, TV, so-called conservative podcasts, this doesn't even exist. The fact that they have now created as two Nobel Prize winning, I mean, the French guy who won the Nobel Prize for discovering HIV, and then Van den Bosch, who's one of the greatest vaccinologists of of the generation, warned that in the history of humanity, we've never mass vaccinated in middle of a pandemic. And if you do it, you're going to create a super virus. You're going to strengthen it. Okay. And then, you know, all along for 16, 17, you know, 16 months, told told July, told July, we had a very predictable virus where pretty much it attacked people that were older or immunocompromised. Other people got it to varying levels, but the younger you got, it was nearly asymptomatic, subclinical, very far from the most remarkable thing a typical person would have gotten. And, and, and there's ironclad data to back that up. That was, that was true all along. And everything we did with masking, with lockdowns, made it worse. We got all the collateral damage, and it did nothing to stop it. Then, after the winter spread around January, it kind of died off. Okay? And we figured, you know, okay, it made sense that, you know, we're not done with it. But we're done with the worst of it. And then suddenly, around July, after the Delta already circulated elsewhere, like in the UK two months earlier, and it was really more like a cold, very few clinical illnesses from it, suddenly, in July in America, it breaks out this utter beast. And nobody has a vision for how to deal with it. And that's the vision we're going to approach today, throughout the week, and as long as it takes. Now, speaking of that vision, today's show is sponsored by Better Spectacles. Too many people throw their glasses in a drawer and never really use them because they just don't fit well. They can't see well. A lot of people struggle with progressives. Well, Rodenstock has you covered. 
144-year-old company, the world's gold standard with over 500 patents. Um, we are loving our Rodenstock lenses, our Ghostbex lenses in particular. Um, these are the lenses where they used 7,000 points in the eye to measure and, and create an algorithm to get, create the best handcrafted lenses with more energy, no neck strain, and the ability to help you see up to 40% better. Go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative like I did to schedule a tele-optical appointment. You don't have to leave your house. Better Spectacles is not an online company with low-quality offerings, so they offer the same stuff um, with their telehealth. They're offering my audience an introductory 61% off their Ghostbex lenses plus free handcrafted Ronenstock frames. Visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. So, again, one of the things I always do is especially when you're dealing with a new issue like this, which is uncharted waters, you adapt with the evidence that you see going on. And again, what this was from day one was a virus that most people didn't even need treatment and easily had subclinical illness without any intervention. And the people that we knew would have critical illness from it or the chance of getting it were pretty well predicted. And from day one, we had solutions that kept getting better, starting with hydroxychloroquine. We understood the vulnerability of vitamin D deficiency. And of course, our government did nothing about that. We did everything that didn't work and then did things that obviously harmed, it, harmed what was going on. And then we blocked all solutions. What we saw break out late last week was a vicious attack on the safest drugs imaginable that have been saving thousands of lives, I would argue millions of lives in India, and no one had anything to say. No one had anything to say at the time. They ignored it. But just like with hydroxychloroquine, at the minute, at the moment we finally reached critical mass, they pounced on it. They pounced on it. I could tell you, I think you would agree with me that we've never seen a greater idolatry in our history than mask wearing. Yet, I will tell you, there's probably no one around who attacked masks more than I did at a very deep level. We covered every angle from it, the data, the science. And I wasn't attacked nearly this badly as for promoting cheap repurposed drugs that are safe and effective. And like I've been stressing from day one, it's not a matter of any one drug. First of all, you need a multi-drug com compound like you usually do with a complex virus or complex element. And the key is for our government not to go and tell people, don't treat it until you can't breathe. Okay, a simple proposition. Yet, we have seen more vicious blowback. Pierre Corey, there's a Time Magazine hit on him saying he's a scam man. This is a man who, by the way, is pro-vaccine, pro-mask. He's a liberal New York Democrat, or at least until now, I know he was a New York liberal. But all he wanted to say is, look, I'm an ICU doctor, I'm a pulmonologist, you gotta treat this early. He should be celebrated. What nobody is answering is this question. How do you now have a virus that is 10 times worse than it's ever been? 
it's making 20, 30-year-olds as sick as the original version used to make 80-year-olds. It's requiring very intensive early treatment, whereas it used to be only a few people needed that. And then they're still banning any treatment, creating a death trap. No one's answering that question. No one's answering if it's just a matter of Delta. Why did the UK and really Spain, France, all those countries that got that curve around the time, they didn't have this degree of problem. If it's a uniform, Delta is uniform. Now, there's certain countries that all along the health status of the people, who knows, is it the vitamin D, is it the blood type? It could be a bunch of things. They never seem to have a problem with this. So, you know, it didn't change. But the UK, France, Spain, those Western European countries tracked very closely with our experience all along. But then we got it a little later, not May, June, but July. Right around that five, six-month marker of the leaky Pfizer, particularly Pfizer, vaccine. This isn't me. I would never have thought of that. I I never heard of antibody-dependent disease enhancement. Okay? I'll tell you that. But you got to learn what's going on around you. And two really important people in the vaccine world that spent their whole life championing and promoting vaccines said, wait a minute, there's something really wrong here. It's in the FDA memorandum on the EUA When they say, we don't know about ADE yet, we don't see it short-term, long-term it might be a problem if if there is waning immunity and it needs to be studied. Well, now they've dropped it from eight months to five months and they're telling you every five months you're going to need a booster. What did I tell you about Israel? I said it's going to start immunocompromised, then start older, then go younger, younger, and then once it finishes... It's going to come around and become a mandate. And indeed, within less than a month, the third shot is now mandated. If you only have two, you are considered unvaccinated in Israel. And America has literally adopted, as I predicted, Israel's strategy of dealing with this. So by their own admission, it's not working. They're spreading it. The theory, the working theory now that seems to be every single clinician that has studied this under the microscope and clinically for 18 months is telling me, and we're going to have a guest on in a couple of minutes that's going to affirm that, that there are insane viral loads that are being passed around. Remember, remember, anything in the right dose could kill anyone. So what originally would have bounced off of someone under 50, you know, would have been, you know, halfway there, 50 to 65. Now it could kill anyone. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You look, folks, you look at Oregon. Okay, this is an article from Oregon. Counties request trucks for bodies as deaths climb. This is ABC News. The death toll from COVID-19 in Oregon is climbing so rapidly in some counties that the state has organized delivery of one of the refrigerated truck to hold the bodies and is sending a second one. The state emergency management department said Saturday. Now, Oregon did everything right, okay? They have roughly Israel's level of vaccination. They have all sorts of restrictions. They have an outdoor mask mandate. You can't look me in the eye and say and tell me this is all the unvaccinated. That's number one. 
Number two, even if it would be, it shouldn't be worse than it ever was. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Why are the viral loads higher? Oh, well, Daniel, that's Delta. But why do we have that? When in history has it ever gotten worse? It attenuates. It's Mueller's ratchet. It goes down, not up. Remember something interesting. The South always gets hit in the, sum- the, the summer. But it's late spring, early summer, not late summer. Last year, like clockwork, following the Hope Simpson book on respiratory viruses in southern latitudes, it started right around Memorial Day in the South. By now, the end of August, it was dead. It was gone. Okay? Notice this year, anyone, whether you are very into the vaccine, not into it, anyone would have told you, between the built-up immunity and the vaccine, yeah, maybe you get a little bump in the, in the summer in the South. No one expected it would be 10 times worse than it was last year. But an interesting wrinkle that I think is important Another difference is it didn't, it didn't start in Memorial Day. We came Memorial Day, and it was fine. It started around mid-July. I give or take, depending on the state, about six weeks delayed. And what that tells me is that we were slated to have what logically everyone thought. Now it's like, if you have 99% vaccinated and not 100, then you're going to be destroyed. It makes no sense. They, everyone would have told you, even in the lowest vaccinated states, much less in Florida where it was more, Oregon is certainly more, parts of California getting hit hard, very high vaccination levels. They would have told you, yeah, maybe a little bit here and there among those unvaccinated, of course, but you wouldn't see this. And indeed, we weren't seeing it until it broke out later. The UK got hit with Delta, and it turns out in retrospect, they were very lucky about two months earlier. So they got extremely lucky because it was Mueller's ratchet. They have very good data, best data in the world there. It was more transmissible, not that much more, mainly in households, much less deadly. Okay, that was the story. That is incontrovertible. So they got very lucky because what that allowed them to do is come much closer to the threshold of herd immunity on the cheap. On the cheap. And mind you, even there, half the people hospitalized had the vaccine. But the raw numbers were very low. Huge, huge, huge decoupling of cases and deaths. My hypothesis is that the viral enhancement broke out sometime in July... This is not me. This is, if you look at the timeline of them, they're saying the position of our government and the Israeli government is, give or take, roughly five months is where the the leakage starts. Leakage brings upon antibody-dependent enhancement. And this has created, so these guys are walking around with massive viral load, and they're blasting people. And people in both groups are dying, More so, the unvaccinated, of course, for the time being. But no one can answer the question, if your answer is to get a third shot and then a fourth one, when the studies already show it has even less benefit, and then again, we're covering up all the deaths. Trial site news has an analysis out that just the VAERS reporting 
shows a 98% 98-fold more death than the flu shot. Okay? And you might still still think that's relatively low, but that's much much higher than we're used to. And again, there's in the in their own reporting, in FDA's own report in their authorization for Pfizer, they write that theirs is not capturing it's not capturing enough of the surveillance even on myocarditis which is much more evident than a lot of other symptoms that are really, you know, just hard to pick up on. So they're never they're not answering what is their solution? The more you do this, the more you're going to bulk up the virus. And the more it's going to learn to escape it. So the more people you're going to kill from the vaccine, the more the vaccine's not going to help them, the more it's going to screw those who don't have it. I mean, you know, again, originally our position was that we don't have enough information. Definitely, if you already had the virus, you have better immunity, you shouldn't get it. Kids shouldn't get it. Vulnerable people looked like it was worth it. And then where in terms of younger adults, it was unclear. But it looked very clear for a while that if you're under 50, it certainly didn't make a lot of sense to get it. And it was right at the time. In the data, it was, it was like being struck by lightning. Now you have young people dropping like flies. You'll have a 30-year-old woman getting it worse than a 70-year-old man used to get it. No one's explaining that. And no one's explaining how this... I believe they caused it all. I believe that if from day one, we didn't do any of this, we would have treated it normally and done treatment, it would have been done with. Uttar Pradesh proves that. Again, Uttar Pradesh, they handed out, I don't even think there are high dosages of ivermectin. Now, because of this viral load, you need even a higher dosage along with other drugs. Uttar Pradesh, I have the data, it's incontrovertible. Sweden, they're not having a problem now. Because they already reached herd immunity when it was weaker. We screwed ourselves. This is a fact. What is headed to the northeast and the Midwest? It's already happening. It's already it's already started. Even in Maryland, where I am, it's already started. Okay? So there's frantically saying, get a third shot. But wait a minute. But you know. You can't deny all the problems it caused. And you lied to us. You never predicted that. And then they viciously foreclose any solution. No one could get drugs. So the few doctors that might have been inclined like, yeah, this is getting bad. I better treat it. Now they're like, why should I treat it and lose my career? Go home until you can't breathe. And again, it's happening to all sorts of people. You know how vicious this is? A man like Sean Trende used to be a right center right type of guy. I used to correspond with him. He was, an, he was, an, he was the nicest mild manner guy. He tweeted out late last week, if you aren't vaccinated and other people need an ICU bed, we should unplug you, throw you in the, in the family station wagon and wish you luck. I'd even throw an ivermectin for free. Dude, I wish you'd do that. 
That's the problem. They want to have it both ways and say, we'll treat you like a dog, but then block it, block us from doing it properly. So people have to go on the black market. People stupidly get the horse paste. Other people maybe get a hold of it, but they don't know the right dosage and they don't have the other ways of the proper cocktails and they don't have access to a doctor. How do we have that 18 months into this? We are sitting, folks, I can't even list you all of the things that show promise, or at least before the, the, the Pfizer variant. Where we could have, when the virus was more of a baby than a beast, we could have easily achieved full herd immunity, gotten people over it through treatment. And now it's getting worse and worse and worse, and we need better and better treatments. But there is so much research out there. Why is there a full blockade on all treatment? Why? They did it before the vaccine. And that's what I want to talk about with our next guest. So today's special mystery guest is none other than Dr. Richard Urso. He's been a board-certified ophthalmologist for over three decades, and he could have been like anyone else that says, look, you know, I treat eyes, I'm an eye surgeon, eye specialist. I don't have anything to do with a virus. You know, I'm not a PCP, so, you know, I'll just run away from it. But indeed, he has so much more in his background. He's invented an FDA-approved drug. He's dabbled in repurposed drugs. So from day one, he felt, as a doctor, it was his responsibility, especially when he saw others weren't doing this, to actually go and treat this. He's like, wait a minute. We see this virus. We see the inflammatory response coming a mile away. We know it's going to spread everywhere. We got to treat this. And indeed, he's treated it for, you know, well over almost a year and a half by now. Um, he was very prominent early on trying to convince <clears throat> Washington to get on board hydroxychloroquine. And has since then, like all the other doctors, updated his uh, – uh, you know, protocols as the science evolves, as we learn more, gets better and better. And he's with us today to share some of that information and so much more. Dr. Urso, thanks so much for joining us on such a busy day for you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, thanks for the introduction. You know, as I heard it, I was thinking back to 2020. Uh, and when I first uh, got exposed to the viral uh, uh, that was the virus that was coming, it was like February, and a lot of my friends uh, know that I did drug development. Uh, saying I dabbled in it is kind of like saying, uh, you know, somebody in Babe Ruth dabbled in baseball, you know, so there's no dabbling. I spent <laughs> all my time thinking about it. Drug development is, is what I love doing. Um, I did 11 years of research in uh, uh, tissue culture, looking at uh, inflammation, scarring, and wound healing, and uh, I've got quite a, quite a bit of things that I've done with uh, different drugs. Repurpose many times because it's easier to go through. I don't have to go through FDA processes. It's a lot easier to repurpose things for other uses. So as I got involved in it, it became pretty clear to me. I literally joked around with my my uh, my team and I said, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go end this pandemic today. It's really gonna lock us down." I was joking, of course, but I came back about two hours later and I said, "Guys, there's about uh, roughly I found like nine things. It turns out that almost all nine, except for one." turn out to be useful against this virus it's a it's a multi-drug cocktail and i i knew that from the get-go and so my very first patient march 10th last year i used steroids i use uh, hydroxychloroquine i use erythromycin vitamin d and aspirin 
And people were asking me, why are you using steroids as a virus? And I said, you know, you don't realize that upper respiratory viral diseases, they only have a life cycle of five to seven days. Like human beings don't last for 300 years. Upper respiratory viruses don't last for very long either. So they've got five to seven days. And at that time, nobody had cultured the virus. Uh, and then later in the year, they cultured it up to day eight. And then it's turned out that, you know, basically what I said was that the virus is gone. So I would always joke around and say, we don't need a virologist for this disease because there's no virus after a week. It's viral particles. You got <laughs> car parts, not cars. Anyway, that's kind of the start. Exactly. So, so, so you're not the run-of-the-mill eye doctor. You had so much experience in uh, developing drugs, looking at repurposed drugs, particularly in studying inflammation, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the room here, the pulmonary inflammation. And last year, you were part of that group of doctors that was pushing hydroxychloroquine with zinc, but again, many other things, and I want to get to some of those a little bit later, but I want to start from the here and now. How does it make you feel when you're watching this sudden, almost like a military-style coordinated attack on ivermectin last year. We've been yelping about ivermectin for months, and the media didn't really, like, trash it. They kind of ignored it, and everyone understood that it was working, at least on some level. Everyone understood that it was safe as anything and being, you know, it was used for so long. Even the biggest detractors never said it was a horse dewormer. They understood it was an FDA-approved drug. They, you know, they kind of ignored it, but suddenly... They convinced everyone who never heard of it, which is a lot of people, that this is some poison, some horse drug or something. Now, you could tell us more than anyone alive, probably, this is not a new tactic. Indeed, you are on the receiving end of this war on therapeutics already a year ago. Yeah, great, great question. You know, basically what we're talking about here is how do we, how do we approach uh, any epidemic? Uh, you know, we do contagion control, of course. Um, then we uh, try to attack the pathogen. Uh, also, and then of course we have therapeutics uh, to uh, mitigate the damages. So uh, we do prophylactics, prophylactics, um, and then we do vaccination programs to uh, if we have a pathogen that's uh, going to uh, do well with vaccination. So there's a multitude of things you do, uh, and basically you just assume that everybody's doing all of it at once. You know, you don't you don't just piecemeal. You do everything. So uh, and that's how you attack things. You know, you, you go at it with multiple modalities. Somehow uh, the modality of early treatment got left behind somewhere. I don't know why. Never, never dropped out of my mind. Uh, immune tolerance is important. I, I always thought the host was most important. Uh, you know, we not only have to worry about the pathogen, we have to help the host. Let's get the vitamin D levels up for anybody on the call and try to get them past 50. I usually use for every 15 kilograms, uh, 1,000 pounds. I've been doing it for years. Started all the way back. I'm an on ocular oncologist, actually. Uh, did anterior skull-based surgery. Sometimes the anterior skull-based surgery, get a CSF leak, and I have to put a lumbar drain in. So, you know, I know what I'm doing, and I don't worry too much about people who say the other things. So I'm not too, I'm not too, I'm not too, um, I don't read the media and stuff like that, but I did have to deal with it because we couldn't have pharmacies allowing us to call the prescriptions in, and there's an attack on, on early treatment that goes beyond. It's an intentional attack. Uh, and it doesn't. It is not a scientific attack. It is. It lacks all scientific uh, reasoning, and uh, and that's the most biggest problem I have with it. Is that I'm more than willing to debate anybody on these topics, but there is no debate that early treatment is effective in many modalities. I even say 
you can take away hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. I don't care. I have other things I can use, and I'll still save everybody. It's not that hard. But I already I'll give you the, uh, something, nitazoxanide. We said, well, we'll just use that if they're not going to allow us. Price went up from $100 for treatment to 3000 in about a week and a half when Pierre Corey put it out there. I put it out there. Pierre, of course, has a big, um, huge following. Um, I have a much smaller following. But basically, we put this out there, and people, uh, people started adapting right away to it. There's multitude of drugs. Please well, wait. Could, could you could you explain? I want. Could you slow it down a little yeah. bit? So, nitazoxanide. Nitazoxanide for for you folks. That's with an N. I spoke uh, for about twenty minutes about this last week, and I'm so glad to hear you mention that because I guess me as a layman, I'm on the right track. So, I I googled it. And I looked it up. You know, I started hearing some folks talk about it. I've, I've watched studies on this on and off for a few months. And, you know, as a layman like anything else, it sounds like a nuclear bomb. It sounds like a scary name or something. So I look it up. And on Google, it had the same profile that ivermectin did before it was trashed and hydroxy. Where, like, you read the studies on it. And it's almost like this reverence. Broad spectrum, and yes, it was a paras- anti-parasitic drug, but there was already evidence that it worked for MERS and coronavirus colds, much less other RNA viruses, and it, and it was done for kids, so it had a great safety profile. So I was like, man, this might even be better than ivermectin. Let's get a hold of this, and then I was told we can't get a hold of this. What's behind that? Well, why why did the price shoot up all of a sudden? Well, there's only one manufacturer, and I'm going to say this: you know, for historically for hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, of course, they've been some of the world's most essential medicines against tropical diseases. They've been uh, they've saved so many countless lives. They have virtually zero toxicity. I was laughing when I heard about hydroxychloroquine toxicity. I've been prescribing it for dry eye, Sjogren's syndrome, for three decades on thousands of prescriptions. I tell people it lowers the cholesterol, lowers the hemoglobin A1C, lowers insulin resistance, lowers the glucose, <clears throat> decreases stroke, heart attack, pulmonary embolus, decreases inflammatory marker C-reactive protein, D-dimer, sed rate. And there are now 94 clinical trials in the clinicaltrials.gov, if you look at it, that is effective against solid tumors. 94 clinical trials showing its effectiveness in cancer. So I say, so seriously, Stop it. We just need to talk about is it efficacious or not. We don't need about to talk about toxicity. If you want to, I just explained it, and and, uh, and that should be the end of it. But no, we have to talk about silly stuff. So could you explain to an average non-doctor, non-scientist, um, the what happens with repurposed drugs? So, you know, what the way the media demagogues it is they give people the impression that you need something cool. It has to be concocted with the intent of being used just for that thing so they're like well okay daniel fine it's safe after they trash it and say it's not safe and then you prove it is but then they'll move on to the next thing and say but that's for a parasite um and they cannot understand mechanisms of action how it could work for other things so could you explain just the benefit of re- repurposed drugs and what we should have been doing as a government in a country from day one with this pandemic? Well, that's a great, great, great question. So, you know, we always try to find a better mousetrap, right? So I always tell my patients historically, I go, we have a box that the drug is in and it's basically used for that purpose. But just like, for instance, the drug I discovered used for nerve growth factor, it won the Nobel Prize for growing nerves. That's what it won the Nobel But I figured out that it worked for wound healing and scarring and inflammation. It worked for wound healing. And basically, because of that, um, you know, I was able to come up with something called nerve growth factor. And I would always tell people, if they had called it something else, 
other people would have figured it out before me, but they didn't because it was called nerve growth factor, and all they could think about was growing nerves. They didn't know that it affected epithelial <laughs> cell migration. So what we're seeing is over and over, you sort of need to be a little out of the box thinking about the fact that most chemicals do other more than one thing. And now we think we're really smart. Um, we actually, when people do a, a trial and they do research, the research is very focused. And a lot of times there's a broad spectrum of usage, like you just said. And so we can't just stay in our little box. We won't discover all the, ivermectin is called the wonder drug for a reason. It has so many effects. Macrolide antibiotics, azithromycin, erythromycin, they're, incre- they're not that great at antibiotics. They're incredible anti-inflammatories. I use it for scarring. I've been using it for scarring uh, for about 20 years. So, I mean, people don't know these things, but that doesn't mean they're not true. That There are data scientists that have, have shown the work. Um, it just, uh, you know, it's just the data's there. I didn't come up with this stuff. A lot of great people came up with ideas, and then I recognized it when I saw that I could apply it. That's what a repurposed drug is about, is basically recognizing, not out of the clear blue, you don't just do it now in a lab that it had this other usage, and then we use it because we recognize that there's inflammation scarring going on in disease. So it's not just a, hey, let's throw something at the wall. That's not what happened. Repurposed drugs are first given scientific uh, discovery of their own, and they're used for things that are scientifically found in the in the lab, and the and the FDA allows us to apply it because it's already has some science behind it. We don't just say, "Hey, I'm going to give you some some medicine for something and just see what happens." No, there's data, there's information, there's scientific research that's been done. That's how it's done. Period. So, in other words, as a doctor who's a scientist, which many of them appear not to be. But you're a scientist and you're an innovator. So over time, throughout your practice of medicine, on a broad array of ailments and mechanisms, you've been using repurposed drugs and you prescribe them and there's never an issue. That's like normal. And you just described an example with that with the nerves and and wound healing. And innovative doctors do this all the time and it saves lives. If we wouldn't do it, there'd be a lot more dead people. Why all of a sudden... Last year, did you feel you started hitting a brick wall with pharmacies and government agencies and you were brought before a board with hydroxychloroquine? What do you think is motivating that? Well, first of all, being brought before the board, I already knew I'd win that because I have all the data. I knew that they wouldn't be able to sit there and say anything. I was scared for a day because I was a little shocked. But other than that, I just said, I'm going to keep going. I know I'm right. So uh, when they see the information, they'll realize that they're wrong. So. Uh, you know, so they can do that kind of stuff, but I'm not really worried because I don't do anything that's not data driven, nothing, zero. Um, I don't I don't believe in that good approach to take experimental treatments to people. Um, I think that's wrong. If you don't have good information, you should not be doing it. Like I just said, everything we do should have a purpose. You know, so the fact that we had no recognized treatments means we had to go out and find some recognized treatments. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do as doctors. So when people started pushing back on recognized treatments, it's intentional. It's intentional at this point. I didn't know at first if it was intentional. I did not know. I was basically in the camp of, well, maybe they don't know. So I talked to people. I knew people. And I ended up in the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, in the White House. I talked to a lot of people. Um, I have uh, one of the key members of the White House now works for a family member of mine. Um, I wouldn't say her name, but everybody would recognize it. But I'm going to leave it out of the conversation. They could just think it up for themselves. Bottom line is a lot of great people are there trying to do the right thing. Some are political, 
positions. Some of them are actually scientists. The scientists are trying to do the right thing. What I would say is the political side, I don't understand. I'm not going to go there. I don't feel like I understand all the, all the moving parts. I do know it's wrong. I do know it appears to be intentional. And I do know that it should never happen. A lot of people passed away. And a lot of people are passed away now because Rite Aid and all these pharmacies are, are denying treatments that are acceptable. But like I said, we have other, other modalities. Why they're doing it, uh, other people like yourself are going to have to figure it out. I can tell you it's wrong. It should never have happened, and a lot of people uh, perish because of it. What what is how does it make you feel when you see that <clears throat> they're throwing all these canards at repurposed drugs that have had the best safety profile and have been recognized as wonder drugs, broad mechanisms of action? Um, it's funny, I, I keep reading to my audience all the studies on ivermectin before the pandemic, just before we even knew what COVID was, and I've never seen a drug just from my end where it was referred to with such reverence in all of the literature. Broad spectrum, wonder drug, unbelievably safe, one of the greatest achievements in, in medical you know, history of the last 50 years. Um, and, and, and there's more and more, and then, you know, we had seen nitazoxanide and so many more of these things, but then, then when it comes to remdesivir, it's like, if they go to the other end of the spectrum and with no data showing it worked, and now there's problems, they, they not only green lit it, but they made it the only standard of care at 3000 a pop. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wish remdesivir was more effective and I'm explaining why it's not effective. Uh, number one, um, it has to be used when the virus is replicating. As I said, the virus replicates for five to seven days. Human beings live for 100 years. Virus cycles, upper respiratory viral RNA viruses live for five to seven days. We might say that we might even consider giving it out all the way to day 10. But then they're giving it day 15 and 20. The virus is not there anymore. There's just particles. I just got called from the hospital telling me a guy who's been in there for three weeks that he still tested positive. I said, of course he did. He's got particles. He's got their, they take sometimes two to three months to degrade. So he's going to keep testing positive. He doesn't have live virus. He needs to stop. I go, how, how, how ridiculous is this? This is, this is, you should know better. You're shame you know, be ashamed, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is not right. I mean, this is just, you know, I, I don't know what to say, but, but bottom line is we're dealing with a lot of um, poor science, poor data information uh, relations. And, uh, and I, I really do uh, take offense to it at some points because, um, you know, we're hurting people. People are dying because they're misinterpreting the data. Nobody should, everyone should know that the virus is gone. Even the FDA has said that, uh, and this, I'm sorry, the CDC, that after 10 days, they've been kind enough to actually say, you're, you know, the virus is no, you're no longer infectious, period. And it's not an opinion. It's just that's the way it is. And the CDC even agrees. So at the same time that we're dealing with all this, they're, they're intentionally stopping our ability to get the medicine. They're even holding it up apparently in customs because uh, they're trying to get more into the country. They're, you know, they're, they're refusing to uh, deliver it. Apparently Amazon is refusing to deliver some of these things. I, I don't understand why, but it's certainly I consider it to be intentional and wrong. No, it definitely is intentional. definitely is uh, concerted, as we noted before here, Amazon stopped um selling knack which is truly truly shocking over the counter uh you know good for you know anti-inflammatory agent um before we move on just to the latter half of this 
I, I, you mentioned a lot that there's not just one or two drugs, and we've teased out some of this stuff a little bit before. And obviously, every diagnosis, you have to deal with the patient. You have to ask his history. You know, you treat what you see. Um, everything is individualized. But just if you could speak broadly, generally, what are some of the things and protocols that you have found to be very helpful? Well, first of all, you know, we talk a lot amongst ourselves, Pierre, Corey, Pierre McCullough. Uh, we share a lot of information amongst ourselves. Dr. Shetty from South Africa uh, is a guy named Debella from India. There's a lot of us that try to talk together, share ideas. And what we know, what we know is that the disease is inflammatory. That's what kills people. And we know that the disease is thrombotic. That's what kills people. Nobody dies from the virus. They die from thrombosis and inflammation. So a lot of your therapies need to be directed in that attention. If you get a rising D-dimer, you're not going to survive. It means you're creating microthrombosis. So we, we check for things like uh, that, and we check for C-reactive protein, IL-6. There's inflammatory markers that can help us to decide how we're doing with the inflammatory side, how we're doing with the, um, with the thrombosis side. So broad categories, inflammation. What do we use there? We use a lot of different drugs. We use, um, you know, we use steroids. Steroids are amazing. As I said, I used them in March 2020 because I know my science and I know that viruses, what I did work in a lot, they don't grow past a certain point. They, they die off and then you're left with particles, which I call car parts. You don't die of cars, you die of car parts. And so those inflammatory particles are what you have to deal with. And you deal with that with H1 blockers. Like uh, I, I personally like something called the 5-HT blocker, ciproheptadine or promethazine, because they block H1, but they also block uh, a little bit of acetylcholine and serotonin. I think the serotonin part of it is part of the equation. Um, but that's an, that's an inflammatory response. And there's H2, like Pepsi. You think that might have some role. Uh, there's also um, uh, leukotriene analogs, like, like Singular. So that's what you get if, you, if I end up with somebody. I end up treating them with steroids. Uh, ciproheptadine or, or promethazine, uh, pepsid, promotidine, um, and then I use uh, singular monoleucast. So that's the anti-inflammatory effects I use. But there's others like colchicine, the Vinonix trial. Colchicine is another anti-inflammatory. Another one is phenofibrate, which I use sometimes also. Phenofibrate is one of the ones. Colchicine and phenofibrate I figured out last March. And uh, phenofibrate uh, decreases NLRP3 inflammasomes. Um, the, uh, there's, I've seen people say how it works. They got it wrong, but it decreased in all our P3 inflammasomes. And then colchicine is also an anti-inflammatory. So all of those things, I just named a good number of them that can have an impact. Then you got to look at the thrombotic side, Eliquis, Zarelto, aspirin, and then our favorite for this, these Lovinox. Is, uh, you know, you give about 80 milligrams a day or one milligram per kilogram. You do the higher doses. That's how, that's how we keep people from having the blood clots. So those are the two main things. And then you can understand that hydroxychloroquine has effects on platelet aggregation, something called netosis, neutrophilic trap. So in late disease and small doses, it can prevent some of the thrombosis. Everyone knows that. That's a literature done from lupus and many other inflammatory diseases that cause thrombosis. It's not my opinion. It's just in the literature for years. So I think in low doses, it can be effective. It's preventing some of that. Uh, also, uh, ivermectin has some impact on that in neptosis, and also that's neutral extracellular traps, which cause blood clots, and also affects uh, through uh, uh, through uh, myeloperoxidase uh, decrease. It affects also uh, uh, blood clotting. So it has effects on the later stages. 
uh, the reason why we attack the pathogen is because we want to lower the viral loads. And one of the things we're seeing with the Delta variant is much higher viral loads. So drugs like remdesivir can help. We're doing the monoclonal antibodies early because I tell people, and I could talk about that in a minute, but in fact, I'll leave it off just for now. We can do the monoclonal antibodies. We can also use drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Ivermectin prevents nuclear crosstalk. So the nucleus is told by the, by the virus, so don't worry, we're here in peace. That's not true. The virus uh, then decides, uh, talks the cell uh, nucleus out of sending interferon out to decrease its replication cycle. So that's how nuclear, that's primarily how it works as long as, as well as blocking the virus a little bit from entering the cells. Hydroxychloroquine, uh, I always tell people, it lets you make car parts, but it doesn't make you like make cars. It affects viral assembly in a big, big way. And I always say uh, it it's, it's, uh, eliminates the vaccine industry because it creates a vaccine-like effect. You get car parts with no cars. You get immunity. And I say it basically kills the virus not as well as it kills an industry. So, you know, it's, uh, it's an amazing drug. So there's many others. Kalitra was tried, and there's many other things. Hopefully we'll get some better antivirals. That will really be great. So I, I want my audience to understand that five-minute, you know, riff from you. And again, this is not designed for you to understand every uh, drug and mechanism that, he, that he's talking about. The broader point is that this is the difference between a doctor who practices medicine and thinks like a scientist versus a bureaucrat that looks at the NIH. Um, but in this case, there's nothing to look at because it's a blank slate because literally there is no outpatient treatment. So if I could just sum up what you just said, it is the biggest straw man argument in the world to say, COVID's a new virus, and we don't have treatment for COVID. But you're saying, well, the issue is inflammation and thrombosis, and we absolutely do have treatments for that. Absolutely. And anybody, that's why I said we don't need a virologist around. Step out of the way. Uh, the ophthalmologist can be better than you can. So, you know, basically, I hate to be like that, but it's basically what we're hearing. The virologists are saying nonsense. It's no longer a viral disorder after the first week. It's an inflammatory thrombotic disorder. That's what people need to know. And if you want to live, you need to address the inflammation and thrombosis after that first week. And I'll tell you this, uh, there's other things that are happening. The antiandrogens are really helpful. I, I repurpose those for the eye. Some one called a flarinone. Uh, it's like spironolactone. They're antiandrogen aldosterone drugs that basically um, that I found to be uh, very effective on the eye for oil gland problems. And, and I've been using them for, I don't know, 15 years. And I looked at them and said, these might be useful because they also have some anti-inflammatory sets. And it turns out they're amazing. There's another one called pro proxalutamide, which was not on my list, but it's turned out and Brazilians have uh, brought it to our attention as being incredibly effective in this disease process. And it's one of the reasons why we think uh, men are doing worse than women. Uh, you know, the antigen effect yeah. may have uh, increased the inflammatory side of things. So, you know, m women have more autoimmune um, diseases. That's a known thing. Men have, are more susceptible to uh, to uh, uh, infections, so we're seeing that the, you know this is makes sense when you kind of look at it as as you analyze it why the antiandrogens might work decreases inflammation. It, it made it's funny. It even made sense in my layman mind. I had Dr. Ryan Cole on months ago explaining to me why men are more, you know, because I asked him, I said, why are like most of the people in the ICUs men? I didn't understand that. I never heard of that before. And he explained along the lines of with the hormones and how it enables the virus to, to bind to the ACE2 receptor and all that stuff. And I was thinking, 
men. So it makes sense what the Brazilians are saying. Um, but my understanding is we can't get proxlumide in, in America. Oh, no. I think, I, I mean, I, I'll have to look at that. I mean, we, I've been talking to um, Pierre yesterday, uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, no, he, he's using it. And uh, I don't know. It's, I'll have to look. I, I'm sorry for, uh, you know, something that I, I haven't uh, actually employed myself. I've been talking to Pierre about it. And he's he's basically giving me sure. yeah, he's giving me a lot of uh, uh, really good information. But the antiandrogens already we can use the spironolactone, the plerinone. We can use those already. They're they're originally developed as blood pressure medicines, but they have effect. Just as I said, they repurposed. We've repurposed them. If anybody here has rosacea, those drugs may have been used. I use it on the eye for something called my bombing and dysfunction. That's a novel a novel use. Okay, for anybody who wants to hear about something novel, that's novel. Um, basically we're always thinking we're always coming outside the box because there's other uses for these drugs and we need to stay that way and stay open-minded and actually come up with new, new drugs. You know, we're, we're happy about the NIH and all those, uh, organizations to do their jobs. The political side of it is different. Um, I can tell you right now that their statement that there's no early treatment is absolutely absurd. And they actually recommended, um, uh, Tylenol, which is, the last thing, well, I like Tylenol, you know, but it, cut, it kills 500 people a year in the United States. That's just a fact. Um, the other thing is that um, <laughs> Tylenol does deplete glutathione, which has been shown to be incredibly important to this, to the uh, to the binding of the virus. And uh, the uh, 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 the main way we can improve our glutathione levels is N-acetylcysteine, which of course they take in and made it difficult to get a hold of. Uh, again, I consider that to be and, and, and just to slow it down because it might be hard for our listeners to hear that last thing is very important. Uh, that's what we call NAC NAC. Yes, yes, and and that now NAC. Uh, if I want to uh, tell anybody, what do you want to take? You want to take vitamin D and make sure, in a sense, not take vitamin D. But you need to make sure your vitamin D is not deficient. You want your levels over fifty, where your receptors are saturated. You will deplete vitamin D if you go through this disease. But I always tell everybody. Vitamin D makes your immune system uh, basically be able to uh, take the blinders off. That way, if you uh, have a piece of pollen versus a pathogen versus um, uh, a cancer cell, you're, you have better identification of those things. Without vitamin D around, you can get into a cytokine storm because the immune system misinterprets data. And so what happens here in the cytokine storm is we're seeing, they're seeing the car parts as being cars. They're seeing the virus as being uh, there when the virus is in its viral particles. It's misinterpreting that and it's attacking them at a higher rate than it needs to. So this is what we're doing. We're trying to avoid that vitamin D helps your immune system um, have good immune recognition. It's not going to kill the virus, but it's going to make you more efficient in terms of your immune response. So if you could just square that off just complete that picture. I want to really give this over clearly to people. Most of what you've been talking about obviously requires um, prescriptions, but you started mentioning NAC um, and vitamin D. Could you just complete for the for the audience, what is a good prophylaxis regimen? People concerned about the high viral loads, what they're seeing in the South. I live in Maryland. We know this is coming soon. What are some of the best things people could be doing? I always say vitamin D, vitamin D, vitamin D. Get your levels over 50. That's the first thing. If you didn't do that, then you're, you're, you're losing the forest for the trees. Don't build a house if you don't have a foundation. That would be the first thing I would say. I think it's a huge, important message. Data is there. It's powerful. Uh, good vitamin D levels make it very difficult to get into a cytokine storm. Like I said, it's not going to cure you, but it's going to help your immune system be more efficient. That's the first thing. 
NSPW 15 would be second on my list. I think it helps, uh, you know, the, uh, it helps a lot in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is not allowing the virus to, uh, to, to get itself attached to the ACE2 receptor so efficiently. So that would be probably my second. And then you shouldn't be zinc deficient. Uh, I'm not a big, I think the zinc has been overblown in this area. Zinc, if you take too much every day, we have a lot of our ophthalmology patients that take 80 milligrams a day. We know if you take big blows of zinc, eventually you're going to get copper deficient. Copper deficiency causes problems mm. in the vascular system. Uh, weakens the blood vessel walls. So we do recommend to be, um, you know, take, don't be zinc deficient. You know, I tell patients, you know, take maybe 50 milligrams about it three times a week. And that's pretty good. Um, and that's what I recommend. And then I tell people that magnesium can be helpful. Some people um, are magnesium deficient and uh, that helps maybe take maybe one or 200 every, every other day. So you're, so you're not driving that. It does help your vitamin D work a little more efficiently. And then that's about it. I, I, um, I'm a huge vitamin K2 fan, by the way. Uh, I'll tell you why. If people don't know about it, uh, it decreases uh, stroke and heart attack, the best epidemiology we have, by 50%. It improves your bone health. It's the most powerful vitamin that I would say uh, that's hard to get. So D is hard to get from the sun. K2 is in beef butter and, and uh, grass-fed cheese, and that's it. It's hard to get. Uh, it's a really important vitamin. So those are my two number one vitamins. And then I listed the others, N-acetylcysteine, a little bit of zinc, C is overdone. Oral Oral C has really no real data. Linus Pauling pushed that. I've been a maniac about this uh, nutritional health. I did the products for U.S. key teams, NBA, and Major League Baseball teams. I've been following this stuff since I was about 11 years old. I can tell you that vitamin C is over overblown. Um, and I, uh, if you like taking it, you know, fine. Uh, there are people who haven't taken it for 20 years. They're carnivores, and they have no need for vitamin C, and they're, they don't get into scurvy at all. The people who need vitamin C, if you're a diabetic, if you have high sugar levels, your needs for C go way up. So a very high carbohydrate diet makes you more, more, you need more vitamin C in your diet. And that's it. That's a summary. So, so you don't think people need to prophylax on things like hydroxy and ivermectin on top of that? Oh, well, you know, let me say this. Uh, they definitely work. You know, the data, by the data, um, I think that um, ivermectin has been more more effective uh, for prophylaxis. And like I said, the, the reason for that is, um, you know, it interferes a little better with the viral replication cycle through that crosstalk and, and the interferon. Um, it also blocks on two different levels the virus getting into the cell. And more importantly, the data is there. You know, there's one big one from Argentina where no one got sick on ivermectin prophylaxis. And another one where it was 84% versus, I think, uh, um, the word didn't get it versus almost 100% of them got it. I can't remember the study right now. But bottom line, there's a huge difference in two major studies. The hydroxychloroquine is actually effective. Uh, Peter, uh, uh, Harvey Risch redid all the studies uh, that were saying it didn't work and looked at the data. Basically, they were it really wasn't prophylaxis or early treatment. It was given sometimes six or seven days later. Um, and it, it looks like mm. it's about up to anywhere from a uh, 60, 40 to 60% uh, improvement. Uh, but just remember what I said, you're always going to test for particles. So they're always going to do PCR because with hydroxychloroquine, you make particles. You just don't make, you don't make virus. You make virus Got particles. You, so you make, you make car parts, you don't make cars. And that's why they always test. So, so in a study designed where the endpoint is designed yeah, to measure that you don't test positive. Yeah, I mean, hydroxy is not designed for that. Um, but frankly, no neither are the that. vaccines either, as we could, no one knows that. As we could well see. Most people don't know that. I mean, 
zero people know that. I mean, uh, I mean, of, of most people that I talk to, they know Harvey Rich knows it and a lot of other people, but there's a lot of people I talk to are like, oh, you mean it makes particles, but not, I go, yes, that's what it does. It's almost like a vaccine. It's almost like you're, you know, so I don't know if you saw, they actually did a study with, um, with uh, lung epithelial cells and they said hydroxychloroquine doesn't work versus it's, it stops it in viral kidney cells. So we usually use viral kidney cells to study because they don't fight. And then you can find out what the drugs is. If you have a cell that doesn't fight, you find out what the drug, what the drug itself does. So they said they use lung epithelial cells. This, this is one of my most viral videos of all time. So I think it went like 6 million or something, but basically um, they said that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work as lung epithelial cells. So I got on, I, I got on this bright archives. I said, let me, this guy's not communicating, so I'm going to send out a message. So I said, they just found out, and it was untrue. It turned out that they weren't using lung epithelial cells. They were using lung cancer cells, KLU3 lung cells. So they were testing cancer cells. I work with cancer. That was a big part of my practice. I'm, I'm one of the top cancer people uh, in, in one of the top in the world. I mean, I worked at the number one, one of the number one cancer hospitals in the world, if not the number one. So for ocular cancers, I know that's what I do. That's what I've been doing for 30 years. So um, bottom line is that um, I said uh, this, they found out that hydroxychloroquine is one of the smartest drugs in the world. It'll let the virus attack a cancer cell, but it won't let the virus attack a normal cell. And of course, people <laughs> got misinterpreted as a cure for cancer. But as I said, hydroxychloroquine is being used for 94 clinical trials again for its autophagy inhibition and its effect on cancer metastasis. It is, uh, and other people believe that it is very effective as, as, a, as helping uh, the uh, body recognize and helping these cancer cells to turn off. So, you know, it's an amazing drug. It has a lot of effects and people uh, really, really tore this drug up. And even this person is an established researcher. It was put in science as one of the most powerful uh, journals. After I did that and it went viral, they pretty much, they stopped talking about that study anymore. They, I revealed the thing and it literally wiped that study off the map. Unbelievable. Wow. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kicking myself that I didn't leave more time because there's so much more to get to. We'll have to save it for another episode. But just to conclude, I want to again talk about now, I, I am personally very concerned by what I'm seeing. Um, and I want to get your take on where you see this epidemiologically. Do you believe that um, Dr. Vandenbosch and others were correct when they said that if you mass vaccinate, particularly with the narrow spectrum spike protein vaccine in middle of a pandemic while it's really circulating widely, that you're going to create some degree of enhancement, some sort of durability? Is that what we're seeing now? Because frankly, from my end, I'm almost seeing this five levels ahead of where it was last year, where people 35 are now getting what you would have seen 75-year-olds get? That's a great question. You know, Vandenbosch uh, got kind of hit by hard by Yaden and some others. Uh, and, and, and let me say this, uh, that is um, this, this idea about, um, about treating something creates mutants. And so this is not a novel idea. When we're in the ICU, all right, and we treat patients all day long with antibiotics, we oftentimes start getting resistant organisms in hospitals because as you target certain things, other viruses, I mean, other bacteria and other mutations to the bacteria start to be able to rise up and, and be the one to consume the resources. So because you killed off of one, one crew, the mutations end up being able to use the resources that are available and they're effectively able to replace 
the, the previous, the previous um, uh, pathogen. So that's what we're seeing here. You have a pathogen and you have a, a very narrow treatment. The spike is 12%. Um, you know, they're looking, they're, 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 they're hitting that. Those antibodies are fit like car keys is what I tell people. You can have 25 car keys, but you only need one to fit your car. And a lot of times when you're, when you're working on these things, you basically have a lot of circulating antibodies when you have the, the, the vaccine, but they don't fit. And so unfortunately, I tell people antibodies are like car keys, but T cells are like tow trucks. So you don't have to have the key to tow your car away. So if you have lots of T cells, you're going to have long durable immunity. And that's what we're seeing with people that are COVID recovered. They have, they have antibodies to spike membrane, nucleocapsid envelope, and, and hemagglutin esterase. They have T cells to spike membrane, nucleocapsid envelope, and hemagglutin esterase. They have both antibodies and T cells. And what happens in the vaccination programs, they mostly do antibodies. And so there's a very narrow window there that as the, uh, as the attack occurs, the mutations that occur around that attack then are going to be able to be supported by the by by the body because there's no other competing um, mutants. I mean, there's no other competing virus because they've all been attacked by the antibodies. So you end up the people who get treated with the vaccination end up being the source of the mutants. And it's not a bad or good thing. We shouldn't be mad at anybody for it. This is just the true thing. And so that is happening. The, the vaccine uh, is creating mutations within a very narrow window. Uh, but the people who are COVID recovered will have no trouble with those mutations. They will, they will be able to kill it because they have so many different weapons. And that's why I tell people when you have the vaccine, all you're doing is making more antibodies. It's like making more blue pens. When you make more blue pens, you still can't paint the rainbow. You need more than antibodies. You need more weapons. Well, with that, I'm going to give you the final question, which I think is might be the toughest of all. Given what you just said, so you talked about the people who already have prior infection, that they should be good to go. There's so much data on that, um, robust T-cell immunity. But what what would you say to the people that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they're healthy? So unlike most, almost everyone who was older that got the vaccine um, early on, they were like, look, you know, cost-benefit analysis, they're very concerned about what we're seeing with the side effects and they did not view the virus as much of a risk to them, and they did, opted not to get it. Well, now we have the, the mass vaccination. There are durable mutations created around them, and I am seeing people get sicker than ever before. So do you think that it's worth it for even the you know, 20, 30-year-olds to just go out now and it's like, dude, this should never have happened, but now that it did – Maybe it's better I get the vaccine, or should they go with this prophylaxis early treatment uh, uh, strategy? So I'm a huge fan of uh, getting your vitamin D levels up. I do think that you'll be able to tolerate uh, uh, the uh, almost any uh, viral pathogen if you have good vitamin D levels. I'm a huge fan. Of, I've been a huge fan of it for 26 years, uh, 25, 26 years. Um, I've looked at this for the flu virus for many years. Is very effective. People with good vitamin D over 50 almost never get any measurable amount of flu. So I tell all those people, like, um, you know, I would, that's the first things first, all right, get that done. Also, I'm seeing a lot of people with insulin resistance that are suffering from this. And I am seeing younger people suffer from this, just like you said. So I recommend to them, you know, you're, you get, eliminate the sugar from your diet. You need a low carb approach. That's what I recommend. I think it's hugely effective. And I recommend that whenever I treat patients, I tell them, look, I'm putting you on steroids. It's going to shoot your sugars up. If you eat carbs, you're, 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 this is not going to work. You're going to 
shoot your sugar up, you're going to dehydrate and you're going to feel worse. So you've got to, you've got to understand how these things all work. And of course, um, this to me doesn't seem very hard. You know, I, I basically um, feel very strongly about the fact that we look at the data. So the data is in the, in the kids from 12 to 17. This is the data. This is the data for the last year and a half. Um, there is 0.1 per hundred thousand from 20, uh, from 18 to 24, it's about 0.5 per 100,000. And from 25 to 29, it's, uh, it's 0.9 per 100,000. That's nine per million, five per million, and one per million. So that's the data. So I'd let people make their own decisions based on the data. Um, most of the people who are dying uh, have comorbid conditions or insulin resistant. And, uh, and, I, and I would uh, uh, urge them to make an informed decision. Um, it is the most dangerous vaccine rollout in the entire history. If they're COVID recovered, I strongly recommend the COVID recovered, not to get the virus. I recommend that um, avoid the lipid nanoparticles that are like garlic. Uh, they go everywhere, uh, ovaries, uh, adrenals, brain. Um, you know, do the Johnson Johnson. If you're a woman of childbearing age, if you're going to pick one, that would be my, my, my best choice. Um, that's my advice uh, based on the data that I have. Um, and, and that's all I, I, I always say is the, the people with comorbid conditions are the most likely to benefit from this, from this vaccine by the data. Wow, Dr. Urso, so much to unpack there. Um, I will be knocking on your door again to get you back, but I want to get you back to your patients because you really are doing the job the government certainly won't do and too much of the medical establishment. Uh, God bless you for your work. I wish you you know, much more success. We need more people like you and really looking forward to hearing from you again. Thank you. This is wonderful. Uh, I know you listen to Ryan Cole. He's a wealth of information, too. He's amazing. And you know the other guys, Peter, Pierre. Uh, Harvey Rich, uh, there's many others. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. God bless. So, folks, again, that was Dr. Urso that went by way too fast. Um, I didn't even get to any of the stuff I wanted to ask him or some of the stuff. Um, but, again, the point is, and, and I apologize that he obviously throws in a lot of things very quickly. He was in the middle of his practice, in the middle of patients, so it's a little bit noisy and staticky there. Um, but I felt it was certainly better than not getting him at all. But the point is, this is one doctor. You could imagine, and that was just a tiny sampling of what's in his brain, right? This is a guy that has a command of what is going on, a command of the different mechanisms out there. Imagine if we had a government last February that got 10 of these guys together, which we have, we've already done, and the, you know, it seems like a lot of them communicate with each other, Imagine where we could have been. This is the biggest scandal. I don't care where you are on lockdowns, on masks, on the shots, whatever. Everyone agrees there was a need and certainly still is with a lot of people with the vaccine getting sick. Why? Why? Why would you not look at this? What is the best way of treating inflammation thrombosis? Right. That, that was his point. Don't tell me we don't have this. We do. Um, and, and we have things that treat it. And again, like he threw in so many other things there, a few that I even never heard of. Um, and there's so much more. He mentioned phenofibrate, that he was he, he was on to that last March. Again, if he was on to it, I can guarantee you the NIH knew about it. They didn't do anything with it. Nidazoxanid. I'm very into that now based on the research I'm seeing. I'm glad he's, he's into it as well. Um, it's a generic drug. It should be cheap like ivermectin. But now it's impossible to get. A lot of promise behind it. We've known that for, for well over a year. There's even been media articles over a year ago on it. And nothing. This is a very different story. 
Imagine if you had doctors like that. Compare a guy like Dr. Urso. I didn't know how to introduce him because I knew he was an ophthalmologist, but it doesn't really do a guy like that justice. He's kind of everything. He's a drug developer, scientist, uh, cancer, wounds. I mean, all sorts of things he deals with. Um, And then now just treating COVID. So look at the difference between your PCP and a guy like that. Okay? It's like, it reminds me of, um, (laughs) there's this scene in a a Chuck Norris movie, and I can't remember which one, where, you know, tells the guy to punch him. And he's like, you call that a punch? And then he goes and punches him, and like, you know, he goes flying in the air and whatever. Now that's a punch. It's like, that's a doctor. Okay, we would be in a very different position. And this is the thing. When they obfuscate and lie and delay and cause so many problems... We don't have a good picture on what could and couldn't have been done. When they point to these people, increasingly so, younger people tragically dying from the virus. Oh, you see, you see, he should have gotten the vaccine. He should have done this. But I'll tell you, we should have had a treatment regimen in place. And by the way, that was when the virus was a much lower viral load before the vaccine itself created a much larger Viral load is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Again, we'll have much more on this later this week. We went way over time, but I think it was worth it. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns. Send this show to all of your friends and relatives. It could save your life. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.